Hey guys, and welcome back to Murdered and Missing. Before we get started today, I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for reviewing and telling your friends. I just, I'm, I'm blown away. So this is my sixth episode and I've already surpassed 500 downloads. And actually, I'm super close to 600, which I, I'm, I'm at like a loss for words. So thank you. Okay, now that I am done gushing and thanking you guys, let's get down to business. So the case I have for you this week is baffling. Um, I, I don't think I can come up with another word to describe this case. It's, it's insane. So this week we are in Springfield, Missouri, and we're discussing the strange disappearance of Cheryl Levitt, Suzanne Streeter, and Stacy McCall. They're often referred to as the Springfield Three. Cheryl Levitt was born Cheryl Williams on November 1st, 1944, and she was raised in Bellevue, Washington. I've also seen that she uh, lived in Seattle, Washington. So in the early part of Cheryl's life, it seems that she had a good life. She was close to her older sister, Deborah. And by 1964, Cheryl had met and married her first husband, Brent Streeter. And in 1965, the first couple would go on to have their first child, a son named Bart. And on March 3rd, 1973, their daughter Susie was born. Now, not long after Susie was born, the couple unfortunately divorced. And by 1980, Cheryl had met and married her second husband. Um, his name was Don Lovett. Now, Don had four children of his own from his first marriage, and Cheryl had Bart and Susie. So Cheryl's sister um, told Dateline in an interview she did with them, quote, they were kind of like the Brady Bunch, end quote. And I think that's such a cute way to describe, you know, your your sister's blended family. Um, now, in 1980, it brought about a move for Deborah and her family. And I'm sure you're wondering why I'm bringing up Deborah and Deborah's move because the story is about Cheryl. Well, Deborah and her family ended up moving to Springfield, Missouri for her husband's job. So like I said earlier, Deborah and Cheryl were extremely close and this made Cheryl want to move to Springfield, um, as well so that she could be close to her sister. So Cheryl and her family eventually end up moving to Springfield, get settled and, you know, for the next three years, everything seems to be going swimmingly. Um, but by 1983, the plant that Deborah's husband was working at had shut down. And Deborah and her family would then return back to Washington. Now, the same article that I mentioned earlier from Dateline um, 
Deborah said to leave her was very upsetting to everybody. But Cheryl had made a good life for herself. She was a cosmetologist and she built up a really loyal um, client base. One article I read said she had around 250 clients. Now, I'm not a cosmetologist, but I can only imagine that that is, you know, that's a pretty big client base. And if I was her, I wouldn't want to leave either. So Cheryl decided that she was not going to return back to Washington. Now, in 1989, this is roughly six years after Deborah returned to Washington, Cheryl and Don um, do end up divorcing. So following the divorce, Cheryl would initially struggle financially for a little bit, um, and they ended up losing the house that they were in, but eventually she got a house in an excellent area for her and Susie to live in. It was located on the 1700 block of East Delmar Street in Springfield. Now, Bart is much older than his sister Susie, so he had already moved out. So this house is like a fresh start for the mother-daughter um, duo. So we're going to fast forward a couple years. It's now May 1992. It's just a few months before this mysterious disappearance. I Mind-boggling, y'all. Mind-boggling. Just wait. So Cheryl is celebrating her 40th birthday. And Deborah and her family, um, they're going to go ahead and travel back to Springfield to celebrate Cheryl's birthday. From what I could find, I think Cheryl is the youngest. So it was like a big deal. You know, she's turning 40. Deborah wants to celebrate her baby sister. And in addition to um, it being Deborah's birthday, um, Susie is set to graduate in just a couple of weeks. So Deborah and her family, they did want to stay and celebrate Susie graduating uh, from high school, but they weren't able to because Sarah, who is Deborah's daughter and Cheryl's niece, she was in the Navy and she needed to return um, back to base. So the family eventually heads home. Now, I don't know why Deborah didn't stay. Um, it didn't really like specify in any of the articles that I read. It just said that the whole family returned. Um, I don't know if Sarah was close to her family in Washington, which is why they all went back. I do know that there is a Navy base up there, so it's possible. But anyway, this would be the last time that Deborah and her family would see Cheryl and Susie alive. On June 6th, just a couple weeks later, Susie Streeter and Stacy McCall and would graduate from Kickapoo High School in Springfield, Missouri. After graduation, Susie would have dinner with her mother, and then she had plans with Stacy to head to a, um, a couple different parties around town to celebrate, you know, with friends. They just graduated high school. I remember graduating high school. It's it's a fun time. So, you know, they, they wanted to go out. They wanted to party. They wanted to celebrate. And according to the Charlie Project's website that I use as a source for this week's case, 
Susie and Stacy had originally planned to spend the night in Branson, Missouri. Now, Branson is about 40 miles south of Springfield. Plans changed, and the girls decided that they were not going to stay in Branson that night. They were going to actually head there the next day. And they were going to stay with their friend Janelle in a town called Battlefield, which is just 11 miles southwest of Springfield. However, the same article that I read from the Charlie Project said that Susie had called her mom around 1030 to discuss these change in plans. Now, Janice McCall, who is Stacy's mom, reported that she also received a phone call from Stacy around 1030 p.m. when Susie called her mom. Now, Janice would tell Ozark's first news that the girls decided to wait until the following day to drive to Branson. Now, after this conversation with her daughter, Cheryl um, would call a friend and it's unclear whether or not she got off the phone at 1115 or began speaking to this friend at 1115. Um, But Cheryl was on the phone and she was discussing painting an armoire. And I've also seen it reported as a chest of drawers, but to me, it's the same thing, just a different way of describing the item. Now, if I'm wrong, write in, let me know. I kind of just use them interchangeably, but whatever. So anyway, so while on the phone with this unnamed friend, she, you know, she didn't indicate that anything was amiss inside the home. She seemed relaxed and neighbors never reported any suspicious activity near Cheryl and Susie's home that night. So as far as we know, everything was fine. Janice spoke to Stacy. Stacy was fine, got off the phone with her and didn't expect anything um, was amiss. And same with Cheryl and Susie got off the phone, nothing was amiss. Now we know from reports that around 2.15 to 2.45 in the morning of June 7th, Susie and Stacy end up returning to Susie's house that she shared with her mother, Cheryl. Now the Charlie Project reported that Susie and Stacy were supposed to stay at a friend's house that night um, and then head to the water park in the morning but because of it being graduation weekend and the house was super crowded Susie and Stacy decided that they didn't want to stay there and then they ended up going back to Susie's house however they did plan to meet up with their friend Janelle and her boyfriend to go to um this water park it's called the Whitewater Amusement Park and it is located in Branson Missouri So on the morning of June 7th, um, around 8 a.m., Janelle would start to call Susie at her house. She was trying to see if Susie and Stacy were awake and ready to head to the water park. Whitewater Amusement Park is 44.4 miles away from Cheryl and Susie's home. This should have taken them roughly 52 minutes to get there. 
Now, I was able to find the address of Cheryl and Susie's home. And I was able to input that into Google Maps and kind of, you know, get that location and, and time. I don't want to say the exact address of the home because from what it seems, somebody still lives in that home. And it's not my business to put out there. But I was able to get those calculations. So with it being an hour's drive, I'm sure that Janelle, you know, was up early and she wanted to get a start on the day. I am like Janelle. Like if I'm looking forward to something, I can't sleep the night before. I'm up early and I am ready to go. However, Janelle would end up calling the home of Susie multiple times and she wasn't able to get anybody to answer the phone. So Janelle and her boyfriend decided to drive over the house. And when they went over there, it was about 12.30 p.m. when they got there. So upon arriving at Susie's house, Janelle noticed that all three women's cars were in the driveway. And what caught the eye of the couple was some glass from the globe that was covering the porch light was shattered all over the porch. And not realizing that they stumbled upon a crime scene, they swept the glass up. They found the home's front door unlocked. And from what I have read, seems to be normal back in the early 90s. Not normal now. And apparently, I I don't know. I'm, I'm a huge crime junkie. I am a fellow weirdo. I host a true crime podcast. And I'm getting a degree in forensic psychology. So everything in me is like screaming like, oh my god, why? But it was the early 90s. And according to an article by Ozark's First News, murders and kidnappings were rare in Springfield. So... From what it seems, this was a quiet, quaint town, and they truly believed that they were safe. So leaving your door unlocked was not far-fetched. So the couple end up going into the home, and when they got in there, they said that nothing seemed overtly out of place. Um, it did seem like they, you know, kind of checked the the bedrooms and they noticed that beds were made <coughs> sorry and the only bed that did appear to be slept in at some point was Cheryl's and next to Cheryl's bed were her glasses and it seems like a reading book as well was next to the bed and that book was turned upside down so that could potentially mean that she was interrupted while reading was it because you know was this interruption from the girls returning was this interruption from a noise she heard I don't know I don't know if she was even reading the book that night it could have been earlier in the day we, we don't know um but the book was there so in Susie's room they noticed that her bed was made, but 
the blinds had been pulled apart. It seemed like somebody was trying to look to the outside from inside of her room. Now, from a couple articles I read, it seems like they peeled the blinds apart. I don't really know. I mean, why not pull them up or peek behind them? The only reason why I could think like you would like pull them apart is because you're trying to like spy. You hear something, you want to look outside. And I don't know what direction Susie's room was facing, but could it be from somebody who was inside the house that is responsible for the woman's disappearance? Were they looking outside? Were they trying to see if the coast was clear? Were they trying to find a signal from their accomplice? I don't know. A million questions are running through my head and a, a list of like what ifs are are screaming through my head right now. I, I don't know. So Janelle and her boyfriend did note that cigarette packs were found inside the home. And that's not strange. What's strange is that they were there because she knew that both Cheryl and Susie were smokers and neither Cheryl or Susie would have left those behind. So the fact that she found the cigarettes when she knows that they're smokers is not weird, but it is weird. If that makes sense. I don't, I don't know. It made sense in my head anyway. So she also found that the women's purses were lined up together on the steps now, it's unclear if it was like on one step was one purse, next step, next purse, next step, next purse, or if they were like one, two, three. I don't know. I would imagine it was like one step, one step, one step. Whatever. So they also noticed that clothing had been left behind. Stacy's makeup bag was left behind. You know, just things that were there that shouldn't have been there if the girls were going somewhere. So while it's not, it's not strange and it's not out of place, but it's almost out of character. It seems from everything that I've read, those things are normal to find inside someone's home, but not normal in this scenario. If that makes sense. I don't know. Anyway, so in addition, Susie's dog, Cinnamon, who was a Yorkie, um, he was left behind. And Janelle said that he was acting very anxious and jumpy, which was out of character for the dog. The dog was described as loving and calm. Um, so the fact that it was anxious and jumpy, could it be because somebody just kidnapped their owners? I don't know. I don't know. I've also seen reports that, like, the dog was removed from the home. It was, like, one line, so I didn't really, like, kind of fall down that rabbit hole. Now, while Janelle was in the home of Cheryl and Susie, the phone rang. And Janelle answered it, um, thinking maybe it was Susie to be like, Hey, um, I'm fine. Everything is okay. I'm in XYZ or I'm at XYZ. However, that was not the case. 
She was, though, greeted by an unknown male caller who was making lewd sexual comments. Gross. So she hung up the phone. Um, and she was assuming that it was just a sick prank call by some creepy weirdo to the home of two single women. So she hangs up and her and her boyfriend leave. And as the day progressed, there were still no signs of the missing women. And word would get back to Janice, which is um, Stacy's mom. I'm sorry. Every time I say that, I really want to burst out into song about Stacy's mom. And it's really inappropriate. I'm sorry. So some sources that I read said word had gotten to Janice via talk around town. However, that same article I read by Ozark's first news reported that Janice hadn't heard from her daughter all day long. So she became increasingly worried. And when she found out that Stacy did not spend the night at Janelle's house as initially discussed during that 1030 phone call, um, she found out that Stacy stayed over Susie's house. So, um, Janice would then start calling the Levitt Streeter home like Janelle did trying to locate Stacy. Now I'm sure it wasn't, um, you know, like, oh, your plane, your plans changed. It was late at night. I'm sure that's not why she was calling. It was more like, Hey, you know, heard that your plans had changed. Um, and Janelle saying that she hasn't heard from you all day. Where you at, girl? I know that I, as a mother, would have done the same thing. I would not be upset if I knew that she was staying at another friend's house. I would just be calling, trying to figure out where she was. Because now it's been roughly 16 hours, I think it is, at this point, that nobody has heard from them. The girls were last seen officially at 2.45 a.m. and it's now like one two o'clock in the afternoon possibly around dinner time ish that Janice is starting to call um so that evening Janice ends up driving over to the Cheryl home or Cheryl's home excuse me to see what's going on for herself she's trying to see if Stacy's there or any sign of Stacy however to her surprise she was not the only person at the house. When Janice got there, there was about 10 other people inside the freaking house. Yeah, that's right. 10 additional curious people had just let themselves inside the home. I don't even know. I'm, I'm speechless at that. So as the hours ticked on, it's now, you know, the late evening of June 7th. Janice decides enough is enough. She's calling the cops and it wouldn't be long until police arrived at the home on East Dahmer street and the investigation would begin. It wouldn't be long after Janice called the police that police would arrive on scene and it became apparent to them 
very quickly that these women did not leave on their own. Police firmly believed right from the beginning that foul play was involved. And they came to this conclusion because, like I said earlier, their purses were there. All three cars were there. And, um, you know, personal care items such as clothing and things like that were still inside the house. And according to the Charlie Project, Stacy suffered from migraines and had prescription medication that she took for these migraines. And that was found inside the home. So that was just more fuel to the fire for police to say, nope. They did not leave on their own. Something happened. So police would also find evidence suggesting that Susie and Stacy did make it inside the house. So it appears that they had taken makeup off sometime before they disappeared. Authorities would later say that the crime scene had been contaminated by Janelle and her boyfriend unintentionally and by friends and family and curious individuals who gathered inside the house before the police had arrived. Essentially, that glass that they threw out was evidence and that evidence was tossed. But you can't be mad at Janelle and her boyfriend because... At 12.30 p.m. on June 7th, Susie, Stacy, and Cheryl, for all intents and purposes, were not missing. You know, Janelle had no idea that they were missing or that something nefarious happened. And they had no idea just how serious of a situation that they were walking into. And same with those people who were inside the home. I would like to imagine that none of them knew. They just thought, oh, girls got a wild hair and they took off. But I don't know. Cheryl's sister, Deborah, would tell Dateline that she wasn't worried when she first learned her sister and niece were missing. She told Dateline, quote, I was not panicked at all. I said, she's fine. It's Cheryl. She left her purse and her car there. Of course she's going to be back. Deborah said it wasn't until their father told her that he's flying to Springfield. That's when Deborah began to worry. Deborah said in the same Dateline article, my dad started freaking out, end quote. Deborah describes their father as a calm man. So when he got upset, she knew something serious was was going down. In 1992, Springfield was described as a tight-knit community. So the abduction, that's right, folks. Police believe that this is an abduction. These three women left this community shaken to its core. To be taken from your home, the place that is supposed to be your safe space, the space where the dangers of the outside world can't penetrate is a nightmare that I don't want to think about. And I'm sure nobody wants to think about 
this community, they really rallied together. They were determined to help look for the missing women. Searches were organized, missing person flyers were distributed throughout the community, and billboards were put up everywhere. Now, during these searches, divers would search Lake Springfield and parts of the James River as well. And extensive searches were performed on areas surrounding Springfield, but no substantial evidence would turn up. The FBI was called in on June 9th, 1992, just two days after, um, and they were coming in to assist the investigation. And by June 10th, the community had ended up distributing more than 20,000 posters all throughout Springfield and surrounding counties. According to one of the articles that I read for this case, which was actually written in June of this year, that's 2022, these posters can still be found in some storefronts today. So if any of my listeners are in Springfield, let me know if those posters are still up. I'm, I'm definitely curious. Undeniably, these families have not given up the fight. They have vowed to find their missing loved ones. And in addition to these posters, um, these posters would bring in lots of witnesses. And some of them seem questionable at best. And some of them I'm like, mm, okay, well, let's see. So one of the witnesses told authorities that they saw a woman who was matching Susie's description driving an older model moss green Dodge van sometime during the day on June 7th. This witness claimed that the woman appeared terrified and she reported or he, I'm, I'm not sure if it was a he or she. Anyway, so they reported to the Charlie Project that there was an unseen man in, in the van with them. And this man said, quote, don't do anything stupid, unquote. End quote? I don't know. Whatever. Unfortunately, this witness would not come forward until several days had passed. Now, I want to take a minute and, and talk about this witness First of all, why would you wait a few days? Because by this point, I'm sure it's all over the news. You know, word has gotten around. If this community is as tight and small and close as it seems, word has gotten around. So you know that these women are missing. So why would you wait? That's, that's question number one. Question number two how close were you to that van that you were able to hear this man's voice essentially threaten this woman who looks terrified and not say anything? So how did you get that close? Was the van parked? Were you in the van? Was the witness driving next to the van? 
how did this witness hear this man? I, this has got me heated and I have so many freaking questions about this witness and this supposed line that, that this man said to this terrified woman. Like I said in a previous episode, if you see something, say something. Please don't wait multiple days if you know that somebody is missing. Anyway, moving on to another witness who also reported seeing a Dodge van fitting the description of this moss green van. So this van, however, I don't know if it's the same van or if it's a different one. Fits a description, but it was seen in a different area of Springfield. Now, this male witness would come forward and tell police he witnessed a blonde female sitting in the driver's seat of this van in a grocery store parking lot. Now, all three women have blonde hair, so... It, it could possibly have been Susie. It could have been Stacy. It could have even been Cheryl. Now, this, this witness would write down the van's license plate because he said it was, quote, unquote, suspicious, which, which good on him. You, he saw something. He thought it was suspicious. And he thought, hmm, better write this down. However... He threw the paper away before contacting authorities. Um, yeah, so insert face palm emoji here. Now, I'm hoping it was an accident and it wasn't on purpose and he wasn't like, eh, whatever. It's not that big of a deal. I'm just going to toss it out. I, I'm really hoping that it was an accident. And I don't know. So he comes forward. He tells authorities in authorities. I'm sorry, this made me chuckle, but authorities attempted to use a hypnotist to hypnotize the man to try and recall the license plate numbers. I don't know, whatever. Strange. But this man could only recall the first three letters of the plate. And I don't know if they ever tracked down the van. I don't know if they ever found the van. Or what? But Authorities have not been able to link this van, that van, or any van to the woman's disappearance. But it won't be the first time that this van comes up. And this van is also, um, a photo of it is on the Charlie Project's website for all three women. Susie's um, page, Stacey's page, and Cheryl's page. There is a van that looks very similar to the one described as like a, not like a person's of interest. Cause it's not a person, but like an object of interest. Is that a thing? I don't know. If that's a thing, let me know. Now, another witness, this witness is a server at George's steakhouse. And this steakhouse happened to be one of Cheryl's favorite restaurants, which me too, girl. I love a good steakhouse. This server reported seeing all three of the women in the restaurant between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m. on the morning of June 7th. Now, 
this is where it got a little hairy for me. Is it June 6th, June 7th, 1 a.m. to 3 a.m.? Or is it June 7th to June 8th, 1 a.m., 3 a.m.? Because, like, you know, if you're working and you're a server and you're working late and you see somebody after midnight, but you went in on, like, let's say she went in on the 7th and she sees them. Is that June 7th, but technically June 8th? Or did she go on the 6th and see them technically on the 7th? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I just confused myself even more. Anyway, so this server said that all three women arrived together and left together. And she stated that Susie appeared intoxicated, but this lead is unsubstantiated and investigators were never able to determine if the women were even in this restaurant before their disappearance. Now, our last witness who came forward reported that they heard screams and the sounds of screeching tires during the morning of June 7th. This report comes out of Greene County, Missouri, which is 5.5 miles northwest of Springfield. Again, this lead was tracked down and was unsubstantiated, and there was no evidence um, linking it to the women's disappearance. So that's that's all we have witness-wise. We do, however, have a composite sketch of a transient man that ends up getting released a few days after the women disappeared. Now, this man remains unidentified to this day. He was allegedly spotted near the home on East Delmer Street, but it's unclear if he was involved in this case or not. Bart Streeter, Cheryl's son and Susie's older brother, was identified as a possible suspect due to a fight that he had with his mother and sister over his drinking problem, but he was ruled out pretty quickly after providing authorities with an alibi. And another person of interest that was also quickly ruled out was Susie's ex-boyfriend. Some cases, or excuse me, some sources do have his name listed, but I'm not going to put his name on blast because it's, he's not important to the story. I mean, he's important, but not to my story. Whatever. Anyway, so this transient man, he's possibly a good, good suspect. Could he be the man that was driving the van? Oh, that rhymed. I don't know. And like I said earlier, neighbors didn't report any sounds of, um, like, that could indicate a kidnapping. So I don't know how they would have gotten from the house unheard to Greene County, Missouri, five and a half miles away, and then all of a sudden they're screaming and tires are screeching and... I don't know that, that, that witness doesn't seem, I don't want to say that the witness is incredible, but that story doesn't seem credible to me. I don't know. Our last suspect, our last suspect, um, the best way to describe him is, um, a moldy piece of wet lettuce 
that sat in a landfill for months. So his name is Robert Cox, and he served time in prison in Florida for the 1978 murder of a Walt Disney World employee. However, <clears throat> excuse me, just lost my voice. He appealed his conviction due to insufficient evidence, and his conviction was later overturned in 1989. So Cox was released and reportedly living in Springfield in 1992 during the time in which these three women disappeared. It's also been reported that Cox worked at the same dealership that Stacy's father worked. Stacy's father was a salesman and Cox was supposedly a mechanic at this dealership. So is it possible that Stacy went to this dealership at some point in time to visit her father and Cox saw her and became infatuated with her? Maybe, possibly. Cox denies having anything to do with their disappearance and claims, we're going to say claims, that he was with his girlfriend at the time of their disappearance. The girlfriend corroborates, I'm putting that in quotations, his story. He's a promising suspect. Let's just say that. So let's talk about Cox. Yeah, Cox. That's because that's what he is. He's a, Anyway, so it's 1995 and Cox is now living in Texas and he's now arrested again. And this, uh, trying to keep this clean, rated G, piece of garbage, literal garbage, trash human being is convicted and sentenced Holding a child, a freaking child, at gunpoint. I wish y'all could see my face right now. So, by 1996, Cox does an interview with um, KY3, which is an NBC affiliate. And he does this interview... And he tells a reporter by the name of Dennis Graves, quote, I just know that they're dead, end quote. Graves asked Cox if that was his theory or a theory. Cox responded, quote, no, it's not my theory. I just know that. There's no doubt about it, end quote. Um, I'm sorry, what? You know what? The interview with the reporter could tie back potentially to some phone calls that Janice McCall received um, during the initial stages of the investigation. And she's reported as saying, quote, her daughter was cut up into pieces and fed to the hogs. I can imagine receiving that phone call as a mother whose child is missing. Would Ever trash human being did that? I hope you have the day you deserve because I'm sure it's not going to be a good one. Mm. 
Anyway, so this interview with Graves was eventually subpoenaed by the authorities and it is presented to a grand jury in 1996. However, no charges were ever filed and Cox is still in jail and serving a life sentence in Texas. Thank you, Texas. So we're going to rewind back to 1992 when this case was featured on America's Most Wanted. An anonymous tipster calls into the tip line and before authorities could get any information from this caller, the line disconnected. I don't know if it's because of user error, if it was because the caller hung up. I don't know. But for some reason, police believe that this caller has vital information. How they reach this conclusion is unclear. I don't know, but that is what they believe. They put out public pleas to this caller basically begging them to call back. I mean, please, seriously, call back. But they don't. So the information that this person has or had is a mystery. I don't know if this person is still alive. I don't know if this person still follows this case. But if you're listening, please call back. In 1993... A 40-acre property in Webster County, which is 32 miles northeast of Springfield, was searched, and they were looking for the women there. That search turned up no leads, no evidence, nothing. And in 1992, or excuse me, 2002, not 1992, a concrete company was also searched. Um, that company was also located in Webster County. So now we have two searches going on in Webster County. I don't know what brought police to Webster County or who brought police there, but now we have two searches. And this concrete company, um, they said that a man, um, or excuse me, um, two women told investigators that there were men who worked there that drove a moss green Dodge van similar to the van that was suspected in the women's disappearance. Now police do end up bringing in cadaver dogs and those dogs hit on three separate spots in the concrete company and they end up being human or I don't know if they are human remains, but they're bones. They, They found bones, but these bones were too old um to be the women that's that's what the report said is that whoever these bones or whatever these bones belong to they were there too long to potentially be related to the missing women so one year later excuse me one year later it's april 2003 and investigators received a tip that led them to a farm south of Cassville, which is 60 miles southwest of Springfield. They ended up bringing um, heavy machinery in, like a, I think it was a backhoe, um, and they they dug up some holes, which this search actually turned up some evidence. And this evidence included blood and a section of, guess what, 
a green vehicle. I don't know what green vehicle it is, though. The blood evidence was sent off to a crime lab, but the results were inconclusive. So, we don't know that it's not belonging to the women, and we don't know that it does belong to the women. But, I couldn't find any other information regarding the green vehicle that they found the piece. I am going to keep looking, though, because I'm I, I'm curious. I'm sure there would be more, but we do know that investigators do keep certain things close to the the chest when it comes to um, investigations. So maybe that piece of green vehicle that was found um, holds more information and they're just not releasing it yet. One can hope. Now, in 2007, um, a local uh, writer is investigating and looking into this disappearance. And he ends up contracting um, a consultant, consulting engineering firm after he suspected that the women were buried under the Cox Medical, uh, Cox Health Medical Center's South Parking Garage. Now, this is not the same Cox as the person of interest. Cox Health just happens to be the name of the hospital located in Springfield. Uh, I did look it up. Still there. And the, the parking garage is still there. I'm really sorry if you just heard my dog fart in the background. So, police um, end up jumping onto this investigation and the operator who was with this consulting engineering firm um, is operating this ground penetrating radar. And he claims that quote, he picked up, excuse me, quote, three distinct objects end quote. So like I said, police are involved now and they began looking into this theory However, they determined that this wasn't a credible lead and they don't ever request to dig up the parking garage. They don't try to look under the parking garage. From what I found, they don't even get their own ground penetrating radar. Now, I'm not sure how they came to this conclusion, but I sure hope that they did their due diligence and that's how they came to this conclusion. But I don't know. In recent years, very few leads have turned up. Um, but police and family have not stopped pushing. They have not stopped looking. And they will not stop until they get answers. Dateline reported that the Springfield Police Department have leaned on every possible agency to help them with this case. It's been 30 years since these women disappeared. And Sarah, who is Cheryl's niece, said, quote, despite the lack of leads, the city has never forgotten about them and will never give up trying to find them, end quote. Sarah also said that the city holds a vigil in honor of them yearly. Now, at the time of their disappearances, Cheryl Levitt was 47. She was 
5 feet 10 inches tall and weighed 110 pounds. She had short blonde, bleach blonde hair that was naturally curly. She had freckles on her neck and upper chest area. She would be 77 years old now. Susie was 19 at the time of her disappearance. She was described as 5 feet 2 inches tall and weighing 102 pounds. Susie had brown eyes, and bleached blonde hair that she kept straight. Susie also had a three and a half inch scar on the top of her right forearm and a small tumor located on the left side of her mouth. It was in the corner. Uh, (coughs) Susie would be 49 years old now. Stacy McCall was 18 years old when she disappeared. She is five three, five foot three inches tall and weighs 120 pounds. She has blue eyes and blonde hair. She has freckles on her face and a dimple in the middle of her chin. Stacy would be 48 years old today. The Charlie Project reported that Cheryl was last known to be wearing a floral print dress and Susie was wearing a white t-shirt jeans and pink shoes and Stacy was last seen wearing a yellow shirt flowered bikini pants and a 14 inch gold herringbone chain necklace and a gold flat gold initial ring um and a small diamond ring now you may have noticed that I do refer to Cheryl and Susie in the past tense but Stacy in the present tense and that's because in 1997 Susie and Cheryl's family did have the woman legally declared dead. But Janice McCall told KY3, quote, until I know 100% that Stacy is dead, I'll never declare her dead. It's not for any other reason than if I do, and she's not dead, think of how mad she'd be when she gets back, end quote. I'm not going to lie, I kind of chuckled when I read that. And I was just like, okay, I, I, I can see that, you know, like you're not dead and you come back and you're like, dude, I'm not dead. Like, and I'm, I'm hoping that these women are not dead. Like I am hoping and I am, I am putting it out into the universe that these women just are not dead. Let's just say that. Now on my Instagram, I will post photos of the women from around the time that they disappeared and their age progressed photos. Now these age progressed photos I'm going to get from the Charlie project and they're from around 2017. So they, they're not going to be as accurate since there is a couple years difference. Um, I'm also going to post a picture of what the green van looks slash look like that um, is of interest in this case. Now, if you or anyone, you know, has any information, seriously, any information regarding the Springfield 3, call the Springfield Police Department, please. You can call them at 417-864-1810, or you can call Crime Stoppers at 417-864-1835. You can also submit a tip online. I'm going to include that little link to submit a tip online. I'm going to include it in two places for your convenience. One is going to be in the show notes, um, the very top. And then the second one, you're going to find that right in the sources. Now, a reward is being offered for the location 
and prosecution of the person or persons of interest were responsible for the abduction of these three women. So, if you know something, say something. Your tips can remain anonymous. Like I said in the Nikki McCallum case, your tips can remain anonymous. And I'm sorry if I just blew your eardrums, but seriously, somebody has to know something. <sighs> anyway, as always, I hope you keep listening. I hope you give me a rating and review. And I hope you stay spooky and continue to be a good human. I'll catch you next week.